Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How would you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset, and that's when you can reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. Look, it's summertime. Transfer window is coming up. It's gonna get crazy. So if you ever just wanna, again, take a step back and relax, read the transfer rounds, read the gossip rumors, grab a Coors Light. It'll be perfect companion for all those transfer merry-go-rounds. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. The mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when the beer is cold. That way you always know when it's time to chill. When you need to hit reset, just open a Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Now that it's finally hot in Minnesota, I'm going to be looking for an easy beer to drink, and Coors Light is perfect for that. It's lagered, it's cold filtered, and it's cold packaged. It's, again, made to chill. It's crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies perfect for a moment to unwind and so when you want to hit reset reach for the beer that's made to chill get coors light in the new look delivered straight to your door with drizzly or instacart coors brewing company golden colorado and as always celebrate all right so you're listening to this podcast right now london is blue and guess what we host our podcast on anchor.fm that's right if you're looking to host your own podcast this is the easiest free way to get started. This got a content creation tool allows you to record and the podcast right from a phone. That's right. Don't even need a computer, but you can do it there too. They'll also help you distribute it, which is probably the most challenging part. You don't want to have to mess with that. They got you covered. You can get it right on a Spotify and Apple podcast as well as any other place podcasts are found. And you know what? You can monetize it too. Make a little cash for sharing your great content with the world. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one individual place. So you know what? Head over to your app store, download the Anchor app, or head to anchor.fm to get started if you're ready to launch your podcast and make it happen. This is Cesar Pliqueta. This is William. This is Ali Riley. Hi, this is Ruben Loftus-Cheek, and you're listening to the London is Blue podcast. Welcome back, Chelsea fans, to another episode of the London is Blue podcast, your home for all things Chelsea FC. Dan, Mike, Nick, and myself cover all of Chelsea's latest matches, team news, and even throw you some exclusive interviews. Thank you for being an awesome listener, and with no further delay, let's jump right in. All right, Chelsea fans, well, you're tuning into part two of our exclusive interview with Pat Nevin. This one starts to go into thoughts around the youth at Chelsea, what their successes potentially could look like, and also Pat's time playing for Chelsea. So if you did not hit part one up yet, it's available now. Whatever platform you're using, go get it. Listen to that one first and then pick up here. But without further ado, the rest of our conversation with Chelsea legend Pat Nevin. So I want to take us down a path of talking about one of the best parts of Chelsea right now, which is our, our youth talent in our academy. And it has been a bit of a tough road for some of the players like Ruben Loftus-Cheek, now Calum Hudson-Odoi, and many others to get the opportunity to progress into a either rotational or even a, like a, a true starting first 11 position. How do you feel, what's your assessment of the situation of Chelsea, Chelsea's youth progression and what do you think or how should Chelsea be working differently to take this amazing talent and bring it bring it up appropriately? Well, you, you mentioned Callum um, and Ruben. 
uh, this year, and they've done well. They're in the England squad, both of them squad the other night there, um, and they are very close now. Um, remember, these same phrases have been said for the last 10 years about a variety of players. Oh, why is, and I remember the first one, the first one was Josh McEachern. And after that, the whole big list of them, one of them, next one, remember it was Dom Solanke. He's the big next thing. Um, Tammy was the one that I thought, Tammy Abraham was the one I thought had the best chance. I'm going to say something, and I'm talking to people with great American accents here. See if you're good enough, you'll get a game. <laughs> it's quite simple. It's not complicated. <laughs> if you're good enough, you're going to get a game. No, that football is an, a complete meritocracy. Uh, you cannot do anything else other than be a meritocracy. If you don't, you are shooting yourself in the foot. Now, up until then, when every time I had this argument for 10 years, I always say, well, where are they playing now? Where are they now? All these players that you told me were going to be brilliant, top-class, world-class Chelsea players, where are they? And some of them whose names you cannot remember, and many of them playing in the championship in England. Now, you're not telling me that had Chelsea played them six months earlier, they would have turned into the next Maradona. That's not the way it works. So I think certainly Ruben, um, he's making a charge now. It's taken him a long time, but he's making a charge now. When he went out, if you go out and loan um, to the clubs that Chelsea usually choose to go out and loan to, you have to be the best player there by miles because Chelsea will only pick the best player for that team. And even then, you might not be good enough for Chelsea. The jump from the youth level to get into a squad, you know, at the championship level, to get into a squad at the lower Premier League level, to get into the team and a Premier League team, to get into a team in the top half of the Premier League, to then get into a team uh, top four or five or whatever that Chelsea are, those are all massive jumps. Everyone thinks it's one jump from the youth team to the first team. It's not. It's nothing like that. There are a massive amount of jumps you need, hoops you need to go through. Now, if I look at Callum Hudson-Odoi at his age. He's went through the hoops unbelievably quickly. And people are saying, why are you holding him back? And I'm thinking, my God, he's just turned 19 now. And he's got Willian, who's the attacking right-sided player for Brazil. He's got Pedro, who's won more trophies than any other player in England playing today. And Eden Hazard is quite good as well. So it's kind of tough for the kid. But if he's good enough, he will get in. He could actually, he could have gone out and loan for six months and come back. But if he's good enough, I absolutely promise you, if he's doing it in training or in the games that he gets, every time he does it, he will be put in before Pedro. He will be put in before William. That's just the way it works. Yeah, the perfect transition. You know, speaking of Callum, um, you know, and for yourself, somebody who made a huge decision uh, of leaving clubs and, and and joining Chelsea at nineteen. You know, what kind of advice would you give him as he's evaluating careers? Would you, you know, are you going to give him telling him to give him patience and you know give it time, or or what are your thoughts when it comes to him trying to decide, you know, what to do? Well, here's the dichotomy. Um, I had absolutely no patience whatsoever with that. I want to play. I want a game. I want it now. Uh, I feel as if I'm good enough, so I want to play. Hence, when I left, you know, Clyde and went down to Chelsea, and then I'm there a few weeks. But as a kid, I'm thinking, right, okay, I want to play now. You know, immediately feeling that, you know, that desperation to, to, 
not even be the best just to maximize your own potential and you think you think that immediately then i've got my other hat on which is a chelsea fan thinking no no please calm stay <laughs> and it's that it's a complete dichotomy and i understand it is i want them for purely selfish reasons to stay i have a suspicion by the end of certainly middle next season he'll probably be a direct first teamer for chelsea i, I think he's and if not then, but the start of the season after that, he'll only have turned 20. He'll have had that breakthrough little period. They'll have had the dip after it, which they all do. And then he'll have come back up again. And he'll have learned more and more about the game. And I think he'll be, he could, if he wants to decide to go through that route, he could be, you know, our first team player then. Or he could leave and we could get a lot of money for him and he could go to Bayern Munich and he might find himself in precisely the same position in Bayern Munich um he doesn't know but i understand why he's desperate to make the move i'm just not that convinced that the word bayern are at the moment and where chelsea are at the moment it's that it's a jump up really i don't think i just don't know if it is now um i think if you want to be playing football in any league in in europe you actually now want to be playing in england it's just the best there is just now i've not always felt that but i certainly think it is just now so my temptation would be, Callum, certainly give it next season. And if you're loving it and you're getting a game, well, sign a new contract. Is there, so, I mean, Callum and Ruben are kind of the the poster children for uh, youth integration at the first squad, Pat. Um, is there another academy product that you think has a real chance of making it uh, from what you've seen? You know, and popular names that are brought up are Reese James, Mason Mount, Fakayo Tamori uh, at all. So... Uh, any others that you think have a, a real shot? Uh, yeah, each of them have, but there's a lot of growing to do. Um, and they're all really nice players, all really good players. But they're at the most crucial part of their career. This is when, you know, you think about um, I ask any guys and the gals out there, um, what were you like between the ages of 18, 19, 20, 21, 22? <laughs> Try and remember what, yeah, you're laughing, exactly. Try and remember where your head was, right? Well, that's where their heads are, okay? They're not mature. They're not got everything together. They're not, they're educationally, they haven't anyway. Through no fault of their own, they've, they've spent all the time playing football. They've got to try and get all that stuff together. I hate pointing at one and putting pressure on them because I don't know if he can cope with it. Um, I've spent a good bit of time in the last six months trying to tell people, yeah, calm down and calm, please. Um, you stop telling us he's going to, be the best player in the world ever uh, because the effect that can have on some people is negative i funnily enough i think it's not have won't have a negative effect on him because he's got a very specific personality that can cope with that as far as i can see um but you just don't know how people change at that age i mean i've known lads that were just like callum and on the outside they talk really well and they're playing really well and then you get them with a the manager and they are arrogant and they're self-indulgent and they think the world owes them a living and they are not team players anymore because everyone's told them how wonderful they are. You have to be really careful with young minds. They are pliable. Um, and I think you're looking at the likes of the ones that are underneath it. I try not to put any pressure on them by mentioning them. However, I'm very happy to put some pressure on uh, Tammy Abraham. Yeah, because he's a big boy now. And uh, I think if we put him in our first team, even now, you know, if he was a backup centre forward, yeah, he's, he's, he's got a few go, good few goals for us. And I 
still think he's he'll peak because of his physique and the type of player he has probably when he's about 25. Um, he's late developer with that sort of physique that he's got. Um, he can still do it. So do you see, you know, is the future where this integration maybe happens at a higher level? It sounds like what you're saying. It needs to be, it is dependent on the players, I think is the big part of what you're saying, and that they need to be at the right spot. But is there anything, you know, do you feel like the transfer ban could potentially be another catalyst for maybe jumping just a little quicker into integrating these players, maybe a, a little earlier than planned because of a, a need versus the, uh, the the desired dream of execution? No, no, ab- absolutely. That might have to happen. I will warn you, it might cause your team to end up 10th in the league because they're young kids coming into the top, well, the top league in the world. Just beware of that. I mean, everyone who says this to me, I don't, don't don't expect it all to go swimmingly. If you bring three, four kids into the team at the same time, the amount of times that that's worked historically in football at the top level is unbelievably small. You talk Manchester United for a period with Giggs, etc., and Beckham's. You talk at Barcelona. After that, you're struggling. After that, very, very few that have been a group of that size have come through. Now, you could mention some that have had a period of time they've got two or three through. It's just not the way it works. The way it works is if you're incredibly lucky, you get one through a year. And even if you've got the best youth system there is, you might get one a year. That's just the way it works at the top level. You look at Manchester City, they've got a phenomenally good uh, coaching system. They've got the young lad Foden, who's as talented as any of the kids we've got, doesn't get a game. And, you know, it's, that's just the way it is. That's just the deal. But they've got a, a youth team that win things regularly as well. How many of them are playing in the first team? <laughs> you know, it's, it's just the way it is. You, you plead and you want it to happen and nothing would make us all happier than two, three, four of the kids to come through the academy and get it through. But they have to be one thing. They have to be good enough. <laughs> and if, I, I, I say to Chelsea fans, if you promise me that you'll allow the team to be mid-table to mid-law table for two or three years, then, yeah, let's have a go with three or four or five of the kids at the same time. Because uh, that's what will almost certainly happen. So uh, another question from our friend Zane Muhammad. Um, who amongst our current youth talents uh would you see as uh future captain material uh ruben ampadu can i be biased we're all allowed to be biased right i've got certain of course complete bias about right it's a nice thing to know when you have a bias right yes (laughs) and you can see it in your own weakness and i adore ampadu i think he's fabulous um just the way that i mean of course we we took him from a, another youth system. It's not really our youth system, but we've kind of developed him quite well. Um, but certainly when he's played at his best, the times that I've watched him, I have no idea whether he's a centre-half or a centre-midfield player or a right-back. He can do them all. Um, he is a fabulous temperament as well. I, I just don't know if it's going to happen. I remember feeling similar about Nathan Ake. I mm-hmm. thought he might be good enough. And I wouldn't be surprised if he would have done quite well, you know, had Nathan Aki stayed. Um, but of them all, I think Nathan Aki would, I would hope, long term. Again, he needs to physically fill out a little bit, you know, but that guy's bravery is absolutely fantastic. Uh, and he's, he's, a, he's a, an extremely good player. So 
if I had to go and jump on any of them, it, it would be Nathan. So not Nathan Ake, it would be. Ampadu, yeah. If the option on the table still existed to bring Nathan Ake back, would you want him back at Chelsea today? Um, He wouldn't get a game at the moment. David's been brilliant this season. Um, it's, you know, there's been like two or three mistakes. He's a couple of last, last couple of games. I think he lost a marker for a one for a corner. Um, you know, in the last couple of games, but to be honest, I think he should be up there for our player of the year this year. So David's been brilliant. His, his playing from the back has been astonishing. Um, so that's made a big difference to us. Rudiger, I would argue, is the best man-to-man marker in the league. I don't think there's anyone better than him. So, you know, there's other parts of his game, you know, that you know aren't as good as that. But certainly he's the best. I mean, there's a guy that I used to play with. Um, I don't know how much coverage he gets over in the US, but uh, Martin Keown used to play for... Mm-hmm. Playing with myself at Everton, and I mean, openly, at Martin wasn't much of a footballer. Um, he he didn't really want the ball on the pitch, but he really liked stopping people, <laughs> and he was hell of a good at it. And Rudiger's like that; he's like a limpet, you know. He just sticks to you all the time. I, I can remember once playing in Canada, and uh, a guy was going to mark me, and he just kept on walking over, going saying to me. Flypaper, flypaper. <laughs> He's going to stick that close to me, <laughs> and uh, he must have been using the wrong side of the flypaper. That guy, but certainly, uh, <laughs> certainly, Rudiger, Rudiger uses the right side of the flypaper. That was a that was a that was a Scottish burn, Scottish burn, Pat. <laughs> anyway, Rudiger, and so maybe Aki in two years' time. You know, if David, you know, his his time comes up. Maybe Nathan would be the one. I wouldn't be disappointed if he walked in there and you know, filled that position. So we're going to quickly transition to your playing career because we, we are really interested to kind of hear some stories. Um, but, you know, if you think back to the to the 80s, this was kind of a, a turbulent time for Chelsea. Uh, you were a hero uh, for a lot of um, the friends that we've made across the pond um, with your dazzling wing play. Could you give us some insight as to what it was like to play for the club during this time, kind of before the massive TV deals, was it was it kind of like the Wild West uh, compared to today? Yeah, and compared to today, today in many ways it was certainly. You know, I often tell people I write my column for the Chelsea website, and I get paid more for that than I get paid per week as Player of the Year for Chelsea, <laughs> which oh, is. Astonishing. So there wasn't a lot as there was nowhere near the money in it, not a lot of money in it. So, but I wasn't doing it for the money, so I didn't mind. Uh, things like the state of the pitches was rubbish in comparison. But in actual fact, there were still a lot of decent players around. We would be playing against Liverpool. Liverpool were probably the best club team in the world at the time. So when we kind of were going toe to toe with them, and one season we got very close, and you know, in two months for the end of the season, we ne- nearly won the league. So we couldn't have been there. I talk it down and have a laugh sometimes, but in actual fact, we must have been actually quite good for a while, um, in a European sense even, because we could stick with Liverpool, um, and they were the best in the business. Um, but other some sides it was so amateurish, it used to drive me mad, because as I mentioned before, I'd come from education, so that's not an unusual thing in the US because of the college system you've got there, but it is an unusual thing in football. And when I came into full-time pro with Chelsea at 19, I couldn't believe. Uh, I thought they were very unprofessional in comparison to what I was. 
and I played in boys' clubs that were had some areas that were slightly more professional than the the first team. Some of the first team players certainly they they drank too much, loads of them, a couple of them smoked too much, um, <laughs> things like they they tra- come in for training and do an hour and a half, two hours, and then go away. And I'm thinking, you can pay to do a job here. Go and work in your technique, you know. And I'd stay every single day working my technique um, for a couple of hours every day, and it was very difficult, you know, to get people to do it. And I used to have to go into the youth team and say, right, who's the left fullback here? And I'd point to, and the hand would go up, and I'd say, right, come with me every afternoon now, and we work on technique, uh, hacking skills. Um, that kind of worked against me once. Am I allowed to have a good time to tell you? It worked against me badly. Oh, go for it. We we just want to hear all the stories. What happened was um, there was a lad called John Miller, and he'd played for, for a while, but he and he got to the first team for a while, then he left. So I went to the youth team, and I said, right, who's left back? Hand goes up. And I said, right, you come with me um, every afternoon, uh, working your technique, working my technique, uh, but you need to work with someone else, you know, for various technical things. And... Uh, so, but this time I was a Scottish international, so I got this young kid. Anyway, after about six weeks, I'm struggling to get by this little kid. And I'm thinking, what's going on here? <laughs> he's a 17 year old, and he's like, I'm a Scottish international, and I'm player of the year. And I'm, how was it I to know that Graham Lasso was the guy that I picked out of that? Uh. <laughs> England's next left back, purely at random. Um, I, I, I like to hope that what I taught him in that year of working individually with it, with him helped him, you know, develop as a player as well. Um, so I, I, I found it very difficult to get others to be that professional. Um, you had to kind of make friends. There was one guy in particular who did stay back, but his technique was so brilliant anyway that he probably didn't need to. Um, and he was a U.S. international. Any, any guesses out there? U.S. International. U.S. International. Uh, long time ago. I will give you the names. It's Roy Weggerly. Oh, yeah. yeah. Roy played with us for a while. And uh, I've just been in touch with him uh, yesterday, actually. He's, he's back over in the States. and Because uh, he was also South African, right? Well, he was South African, yeah, really. Yeah, but South yeah. Africa weren't allowed to play yeah, because of apartheid ban at the time. Yeah. So um, that's why Roy uh, got back in there. But he was fabulously talented, uh, pure skill-wise. Um, but he would stay behind sometimes to do, but he was just wanting to do tricks like <laughs> skill <laughs> tricks. Like, um, but it was, I kind of found that I remember being a wee bit angry at the time thinking, why are they not more professional? And then I'm thinking, actually, if everyone's or, or a lot of players are not as professional as they should be, it gives me a massive advantage. Um, with, if, with other clubs, you know, if they, cause I'm incredibly fit. I mean, I was a distance runner. Um, so I, I kind of, it can help me that I was more forward thinking. I was quite interested in diet and things like that as well. Hopefully not being a bore. And yes, I will have a glass of wine and always did. But um, certainly the professionalism took a little bit of time. But it was still brilliant. And the club to play for was a, such a stylish club. But I think you alluded to the dark, difficult times when I was there, which was, in simple terms, the hooligan element that had latched onto the club. Um, I personally thought that was just um, something, a societal issue, and they were using the clubs and these people that were doing this. I don't think they were particularly interested in any love of the actual football club. It was self-aggrandizement from them. So um, it it sounds, you know, bad when you look back on it, but there wasn't trouble all the time, you know, and the vast majority of games passed off without any real bother. Sometimes there was trouble outside, but that's 
that was a societal thing that was going on. Football just get cr- caught in the crossfire. Um, more importantly, I had a great time. <laughs> and I had, particularly the first manager had allowed me mostly to do what I wanted. I had an agreement with them that if we ever went 2-0, I could go and enjoy myself and really <laughs> do creative, <laughs> skillful stuff. Um, and that, it was great to have that agreement with him because he understood that although you know winning's up there is the most important thing, I also felt that entertaining was just as important and the joy of football was just as important. Now, people will look at you and say, well, that's unprofessional. Well, the Chelsea fans seem to get it. <laughs> so they seem to be understanding of what I was uh, about. And the new was incredibly hardworking as well. So, uh, no, it was just a, a joyous, joyous five years that, that I had at the club. Um, the only downside is I, we didn't achieve as much as we should have. We got to semi-finals of Cups. We got close to challenging for the top-level league. Um, Liverpool were a bit better at the time. And also, we didn't have a deep enough squad. Um, but we certainly, in my period of time there, for a four-year period, we, we brought the club up from almost the depths, would you believe, of the third tier in the English football. They almost went down. Uh, the, that was uh, the summer before. That was six, no, three months before I came. Then five of us came together at the same time, and we win the league immediately. Um, and we certainly, for a period of time, brought a lot of joy back in Chelsea fans' hearts. So, Pat, your dad would come to matches um, and watch, but uh, often, from what we've what I've read, uh, he would have to leave before um, the final whistle. Uh, can you tell us about the special dribble you would do for your dad? Well, that was this kind of odd thing. I, I kind of had never mentioned this until a couple of years ago. Um, so this is many, many years after the fact. And um, because I, I'd never thought it was particularly important, but when I told people this story, they went, Really? So my dad would come, he came from Glasgow all the way to London, 400 miles there, 400 miles back by train. But he'd have to leave very early in the morning, get to the game, he would arrive at half one, two o'clock, um, watch the game, but I had to leave 10 minutes early, five minutes early to get to the last train back up, which was half past five back to Glasgow. So we had a, a sign, and the sign was I would do a big, mazy dribble at one point during a game because my dad had taught me how to dribble. And that was me saying, hi, Dad. And I told people this, and I went, really? And I was thinking, well, yeah, how else could I say hello to him? You couldn't pick him out of a crowd. There was thousands, tens of thousands there. And to me, that was the most natural thing in the world. And then when I started telling people, they went, you did just that, just for the pure joy and fun and to say hello to your dad. And of course, you. why wouldn't you? So to this day, I still think that's a perfectly normal way to behave. But people tell me it's a bit strange. <laughs> no, you know, as a father myself, it, I found it super touching. Uh, and it's pretty amazing. Um, you know, sticking with your dad, can you tell us about, uh, you know, obviously he's the one who taught you how to dribble, but I've heard there's an interesting story as how he picked up some of the um, the the practices or techniques that he, he taught you. Well, it was, it was really good because I'm one of uh, six siblings. And I've got three brothers, and uh, they were all kind of taught, but I was the one that kind of stuck at it more than the others. Um, he was an educationalist as well with all of us, so I'm the family failure. I didn't finish my degree. I went to play with Chelsea with a year to go in my degree, so I'm the family failure. Um, but the rest of what he's, he used to go is read every single book on in football coaching at the time. And most of them are Italian, uh, Heleno Herrera. Um, and but also he would take me down to watch uh, the Celtic manager and the Celtic team train. The first team, you could just walk into training. 
and they had a manager then that was probably arguably the best manager I've ever known. You know, probably the greatest manager ever, a guy called Jock Stein. And if you, the reason that sounds like a big claim, yes, I know, I know you're thinking, yeah, just some other Scotsman. Let me tell you, Sir Alec Ferguson calls him the best manager ever, right? So he's got a claim to being the best. And my dad used to go and watch the techniques that he's, uh, he used, but also the techniques of the players at this little club, Celtic, in uh, Scotland. The thing is, weirdly at that time, Celtic produced a bunch of young players. Well, not all young, but local players. And they won the Champions League, uh, the European Cup, it was called at the time, from 11 players within a 30-mile radius. So I happened, by complete fluke, to be walking down to the club I supported at the time, who had the best manager in the world at the time, but probably one of the best, if not the best ever, with the best team in Europe at the time, <laughs> with some of the most phenomenal players. And I was just sitting watching them and copying their techniques. I mean, how lucky is that? That's quite lucky, that. <laughs> and my dad going down and taking notes and writing notes of all the techniques and all the, the things that they were doing, bringing them back to me, and then us working on them at the age of like six, seven years of age. So I was doing these professional drills when I was that age. So by the time I turn up at, you know, 15, 16, uh, I've done those 10,000 hours plus another 5,000 on the ball. I'd already learned never to look at the ball while I'm running with it because I don't need to because I know what it is. So, you know, I had all those things were set in stone there already. I didn't need to learn them. And it was all by my dad learning from, you know, Celtic and Steen and reading. Is, is there one facet of your game that you feel like you're you were most proud of as you kind of reflect upon the you know, the way that you played and the way that you contributed um i i'm proudest of the hard work um i, I am proudest of that i mean i'm no i was known as a skillful player i mean chelsea fans many who will be younger who will be listening to this now um i'd never played on the wing before i came to chelsea and, you know, Chelsea fans are always shocked by that because I always played in the wing for Chelsea, but I'd never done that before. So I had to kind of relearn a different position quite quickly. Um, I'd always been a 10 or a centre forward, sometimes centre midfield, but, you know, a 10 or centre forward. So people always talk about my dribbling, but, you know, it kind of wasn't my thing. I kind of had to, it was one of my things, not my only thing. Um, the thing that I was, that I liked most I have to explain it in an unusual way. There's a player playing in England at the moment, and I remember seeing him playing his first game, I don't know, eight, ten years ago in England. And I thought, that's exactly how I played. That's like looking at a mirror of me, of how I like to play. Um, I, I'm not as good as this player, but that's how I wanted to play. And I tried to play, and it was David Silva. Now, I look at it now, and you wouldn't call him a winger, would you? You would call him a creative midfielder, a 10, that sort of thing. So the thing I was most proud of is what Silva does. Drags players towards him, creates space, and then plays the most incredible ball that nobody else sees. Um, that visionary sort of play. The stuff that Sesk did for us. And the, you know, dragging players towards him and playing a beautiful ball. And those sort of plays where the plays, you know, almost a quarterback play. If Cess would do it, but I like to do it a little bit further up the field. When you got that right, um, the satisfaction was absolutely fantastic. 
and bordering on smug. I'll, I'll grant you that. It was bordering <laughs> on smug. Uh, uh, it co- confident in your own abilities might be the better way to phrase it. No, no you're right. I'm happy you mentioned that because I, I have no arrogance about me at all. I know many of my weaknesses, and there are plenty of them. Um, but to be fair, there is a strange, again, it's another one of those strange dichotomies. Off the field, not always necessarily the most confident person on a football field. Stick me up against Messi and I think I'm better than him. That's just the way you have to be in a football field. It's just the way you have to be. There's no other. If you if you don't think you're better than the guy you're playing against, you may as well walk straight off again. And that's how I felt at the time. So you were talking about dichotomy and that that you're you're a true pro, uh, true pro uh, when it comes to our script. Um, I the question I have is kind of about your the the team. You know, first when you got to Chelsea and then when you left. Um, you guys won promotion that first year and then you were relegated in, in 88. And can you talk about the dichotomy of, of that time at Chelsea? I mean, you, you had gotten really close to winning the league in the middle. So you had a really strong start, really strong middle. And then it kind of tapered off at the end. I, th- I think there's a number of things. Um, some of them are simple. We had one manager when we started and uh, he got help. We lost him. And the next management team didn't work as well. Even though I love uh, Johnny Hollands, uh, who took over as manager, I still adore the man. They're great friends. Um, he his management team, him and the coach, his coach behind him was terrible. He was awful. <laughs> I wouldn't even hide that. He was just rubbish. Um, so you, you made the decisions were made badly then, and also the, they were bringing in. I still thought quite good players um, after John Neal had taken Owen left. However. The spirit in the squad wasn't quite so good. Um, the number of reasons for that, uh, I studied a bit of psychology, so I knew one of the reasons, and one of the reasons was quite clear, and it was the most powerful um, individuals in the original group were good, professional, uh, right-thinking people who had the group at heart. The One or two of those left, um, they went, Tony McAndrew was the, the, the lead one and he wasn't popular with the fans and he, he used to get a stick that Jorginho sometimes gets now but he was so important as a group member as a, and he was the leader of the group and kept the moral and ethical tone right uh, within work rate etc when he left the strongest person in the group was a bad influence and self-indulgent and selfish and that can, that can rip the core out of any team that doesn't mean that can be a football team, that can be a hockey team, that can be a business team, and that's exactly what that's partially what happened. And also, we got a wee bit unlucky. We had a fabulous goalkeeper, and he got terribly injured, and we never replaced him. And that goalkeeper, Eddie Nesvicky, was a phenomenal, phenomenal world world class goalkeeper. And uh, for two and a bit years, we never replaced him. We well, we put somebody in there. <laughs> but it wasn't quite as good and we never we never recovered from that you know pat with the amount of joy that you talk about playing uh the game with i, I gotta ask how come you never smiled in any of your pictures uh I, I've, <laughs> I've looked at some of the trading cards and man it looks like you know it looks like you're very unhappy in those those photos well do you know what i've been interviewed thousands of times and I very rarely get an original question. That is, and can I congratulate you for that? That's absolutely <laughs> brilliant. I love originality. And it's absolutely spot on. You're absolutely right. Um, 
I'm afraid. Uh, well, playing the actual, actually playing in the games, you would there would have been smiles sometimes during the games. But I was quite serious minded during, you know, to do my best. But and I was concentrating, so my concentrating face looks quite looked that way a lot of bit. But you're right, even in the kind of photos, you know, for pre-season or you know walking about, I do look very, very dour. You have to understand the music scene at the time. And I was in a band called Joy Division and they were very gloomy, you know. <laughs> yeah. So the head oh, yeah. look was a bit gloomy. And uh, even though my personality wasn't really at all gloomy, um, I kind of I kind of seemed to be adopting a serious tone. Uh, my friends laughed their heads off at that outward because they knew me and knew, knew what I was like. <laughs> but the, the, the media had portrayed me as this um, intelligent, um, serious-minded, you know, someone who should be listened to. You know, I'm thinking, what? I'm 19. I've just been a student. I'm just having a laugh. <laughs> and they just took me too seriously. Um I hope I didn't take myself seriously because I was kind of having, having a wee bit of a wind up a lot of the time as well. There was probably one or two photographs. Well, certainly I remember one, which was a famous one that was taken and I looked in a terrible mood. And it was because <laughs> had just stopped going out with me the night before. And I, <laughs> and I shouldn't have done that because she asked me back out the next day. <laughs> Well, well, apparently not uh, not always sad then, um, or into a, a moody thing. Um, so, are, are you more of a unknown pleasures or a uh, closer fan in terms of Joy Division? Um, uh, I, I, mean, I I would love to say unknown pleasures, but it's closer. Closer is one of the most beautiful albums ever made by anyone. The, the last four songs, and particularly Eternal and Decades, are just. Uh, just one of the most beautiful pieces of music, two of the most beautiful pieces of music ever made. But if I DJ, uh, when I DJ, I will always play a track from Unknown Pleasures. Oh man, okay. <laughs> so you, you that, that so that's how it works. You would you would play that live in our gig, whereas you would listen to that um, uh, Unknown Pleasures. You would listen to the kind of closer, you know, at night. I, mean, I was driving home last night. I was doing a, a speaking engagement last night. Uh, one of my later clubs, Tramway Rovers, I was there last night, and I had a three and a half hour journey home. And uh, late at night, listen to Closer. Well, uh, that's the right time to listen to that. So I know that you you kind of talk about the fact that you know you in terms of DJing, and that's one of the things where um, you know how did that come about? You know you have you know you're accomplished within it, and you know is it something that you kind of found later in life? It was something that you were doing you know while you were playing as well. Like where did that kind of come up, and how do you you know how does that fit into what you do? Well, I've kind of DJ since I was 15, so it's before the football. Um, but DJ, when you say DJ, people think, especially youngsters, think of the modern DJs, you know. Um, we get a guy over here called John Peel, and uh, John's no longer with us, but we became great friends. And if, if I had a hero, it was probably John as I grew up and eventually became friends with him. And uh, he played this, you know, amazing, what would you call it, college rock music, you know, whatever, indie rock, oh, all that stuff, fey indie. But he also, he was the one who championed punk back in the days. Before that, you know, he was a guy that would be showing you the coolest Zeppelin track or Genesis track. You know, he's been at the forefront of all good music, right? Um, and I, but you can also, he played a lot of danceable versions of that, you know, of, of cool music. And I'd always been into it. So I'd always kind of DJed like that. But you know what? I'd always just done it quietly, you know, and go to a club that people know you and they 
you just play some records in the old days and then it was CDs and now you can obviously play it much easier than that from just one device. Um, but in actual fact, I kept it really quiet for a long time and it was all blown out of the water one day. It's quite a few years ago now, six, seven, eight years ago, I can't remember. And I was playing at a festival, I was DJing at a festival and there was a bunch of bands like uh, Bill and Sebastian and Franz Ferdinand and, and they're all people I kind of knew, you know, I kind of knew the Glasgow Scottish scene and uh, Orange Juice were playing, or Edwin Collins. But I was the DJ and it was the most brilliant night. It was just the right people, the right fans. It was just fantastic. And and as I was walking out, somebody said, oh, I'll tweet that. And I said, well, what's a tweet? I'd never heard of Twitter. This was just new in the scene. You cannot keep secrets anymore. <laughs> you just can't do it. And from that first moment, somebody says, oh, I'll tweet about it. And I didn't know what they were talking about because Twitter had just started. And it was incredible. Uh, so you can't. So from that, everybody now knows that I did you. But before that, nobody did. And it was purely because Twitter tells people. Yeah, I know that you mentioned that you have a couple, you know, Joy Division tracks that you have to play. Are there any other, you know, if we were coming to a set, are there any particular musicians that you will kind of regularly go back to in terms of wanting to make sure that either people get a chance to appreciate them the way that you do, or just you think that they have to be a part of people's, you know, musical education? <laughs> but no, I, there's a bit of me that wants to do the musical education bit, to be fair, all the time, because that's what John Peel did. But you also have to understand people are out for a good time. So you, you kind of balance it. Um, you also read the audience, um, you, what kind of audience they are, what they, the sort of thing they want to hear. Um, the kind of people that come to sort of the kind of clubs that I would play in would always love to hear the boy with the Arab, the boy with the Arab Strap by Bell and Sebastian, which is kind of an aging sort of track now. But, you know, they would always want to hear that. But then I'd follow it with something by Public Service Broadcasting who are, you know, of the moment, you know, and, and a brilliant thumping baseline track, great tune, etc. Um, so it's, I, I'm slightly happier playing modern stuff, you know, stuff that, that I've found that, you know, it's still indie, you know, it's still, I, there's a brilliant scene that I love and, you know, Brooklyn produced some fantastic bands for quite a few years there. Um, Sweden's producing a whole bunch of great bands as well. So I follow the music really, really closely, and I, I, it's, it's a real passion, a, a love of mine. But asking for specific tracks, well, it, I have to be honest with you, it changes continually. But, you know, all the favourite bands, like, you know, you would always put a new order track in there. You would always put, funnily enough, I'd always put an orange juice track in there. I'd always put an orange juice track in there. But, hey, I'm not a snob. I'll put the Beach Boys on, and you know, just to get people driving and dump, jumping about, I am... I am not proud, and by the way, the Beach Boys are great anyway, so I'm not a snob. Oh, just a quick follow-up, Pat. Uh, energy, energy-wise, do you did you get more from you know scoring a goal and feeling the crowd kind of behind you and swelling, or do you feel more energy from you know the the crowd at a at a show uh, kind of vibe into your music? Uh, so that's a really good question. I, to be honest, I don't get that energy at all from a crowd at a show. Um, it's just nice to see people enjoying themselves. There's, there's not a great deal much more than that. Um, that funnily enough, talking about that, um, that festival I was playing that time, uh, the Bowley Festival, as it was called, that, that was a bit of a buzz. Uh, it was a massive crowd. Um, 
they all got it. We or we were all on the same page for the entire night, and that is a buzz. That's a really nice thing. But I had this feeling of I don't want to be playing the records. I want to be down there dancing about. <laughs> so I'm in the wrong place here. So because um, that's why football you kind of kind of be playing because you are the epicenter of every part of it. Um, the buzz from scoring was, we often ask about because everyone knows what it feels if you score a goal, you, you know, whatever your team is, you could score in a World Cup final or you could score in a college game, you know, everyone knows what that, that kind of buzz is, you know, it's different. I kind of didn't feel quite the same um, type of buzz. My buzz was slightly different. Um, my buzz was, I loved the creativity. I love the creativity. So if I did beat three players, threw another one towards me, clipped it to the back post for someone to touch in, that would give me a bigger buzz than anything. Um, I've always loved creativity above everything else. So, you know, celebrating and looking at me and, hey, I'm great. Uh, no, I didn't really get that very much. What I did get was utter satisfaction of doing something that, hey, I know that was quite good. I'm fairly proud of myself for doing that. And I must have done that at least two or three times in my career. You know, so Pat, if we're being honest, you're somebody who oozes talent, both be it on the football pitch uh, as a DJ. And right now, I, I want to discuss your writing for both the club. Um, you know, we've read your articles on the website for quite some time. You know, can you walk us through, um, you know, how did your column become a weekly staple? And, and what really got you into the writing process? Um, I, I, well, the writing process, again historically uh studied english um and i did the, the the highest level you can do at schools and things like that and i might i have a passion for literature anyway so you know writing and reading is you know of, of literary stuff was always something i wanted to do um i then came to london with chelsea and immediately thought um well i quite like to continue writing i like, I like creative writing and I immediately just started like, writing reviews for gigs. So I wrote for the NME, which was the biggest selling uh, music paper in Britain. Uh, so I was writing for them. I hadn't crossed my mind to write about football. It just really hadn't. <laughs> just, I was too busy playing. Um, so, I, But I kept on writing. Um, and I enjoyed it. But my styles change. You know, not, not styles of um, what people want to see. It's what I like. So the stuff that I, I mean, I was when I was younger, I was I was a wee bit more serious. I'll admit to that. So it would have been Gogol and Dostoevsky and Chekhov, etc. Now it's pretty lighthearted, not lighthearted, but I, mean, I love the new new journalism stuff. You know, Tom Wolfe, you know, Hunter S. Thompson. I'm a fanatic of that for many years, um, and I'm a I'm a just a fierce reader. I read at least a book a week. So it's obvious that you want to go and write. So I've been asked. I've had columns with probably every newspaper in the UK uh, at some point over the past 15 or 20 years. So I've always written. Um, I always utterly demand that I write. Nothing is ghosted. Um, I've been offered huge sums to do columns for national newspapers. And then they say, well, we'll get so-and-so to write it for you. And I immediately just put the phone down. So I'm not interested. I love the creation. You're right. It's back to that creation. So um, when Chelsea asked me to write for the website, I said, oh, I'll do that for a year. And I did it for a year. And it was really, it's quite an intriguingly hard thing to do when you think about it because 
um, it's only one subject and it's writing every week about one subject um, most people who write you know you can move if you're writing about sport you can write about lots of sports or lots of teams or lots of different things you've got one subject and you have to make sure that you make it interesting hopefully different every single week um, and, and hopefully entertaining every single week um, and I, I found so you asking about that's interesting there I write it and I write down Right, it, it doesn't take me a long time, really, a, an hour or two. I think about it for half an hour, an hour, get the idea, and then it just comes immediately. But as a writer, I, I put down in the headline, Chelsea Web, then I put the number on it, the number I've done. So any guesses how many I've done? Oh, no, no. <laughs> Chelsea, would you believe 502? I've got it from Whoa. you. <laughs> so... I've been doing it for a long time. Absolutely incredible. I, which I I was amazed when I seen it. I just thought, hell, that's been a long time. I, if I'd have guessed, I'd have said I've been doing it for three or four years. It's almost certainly been a hell of a lot longer than that. <laughs> um, so every every year I try and I, I change certain things. For quite a few years there, I did quizzes and things so that I could get some presents out. Or presents that, that that's a bit of a giveaway. That was slightly Freudian, wasn't it? And prizes away um, to everyone. Um, and I tried to do that for quite some time and, and getting some interaction. Um, I haven't done that for a couple of years, but I think I will go back to that pretty soon. The reason why I stopped doing the as many of the interacting ones it was simple, very, very simple. I was I was snowed under with work in my, my other jobs and I just didn't have a time to answer. And that's the big giveaway. I used to do all the quizzes and... Uh, there was, a, if I wanted a kind of poll on something, I would ask fans, and I would get thousands of answers, and they all came directly to me and nobody else. So people think they're probably you know, there's a PA and Chelsea are doing it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. No, 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 just me. And I loved the fact that I just did it all myself. Well, uh, now that we know that you're the most capped writer on uh, the Chelsea website. <laughs> um, you know, the, the punditry that you've done, and I think we all appreciate the balance that you have of being reasonable, reasonable, but also, you know, having a, a critical eye that you apply to the way that you observe the game. You know, how have you found the growth or the progression of your career within punditry? And, you know, how do you best, you know, kind of describe the way that you can share an opinion without going into... You know, I think what they're affectionately referred to as like a hot take, um, because that doesn't that, that's definitely not on brand for you. Yeah, well, there's um, we've kind of taken a lot from the shock jock thing in the states, um, and it's came over a few years ago. We weren't really like that um, in the UK. Uh, it was a little bit of it, but it's really come over big style here, and it's certainly a big part of the the media world. Um, and of course, you need to add that. People want binary binary answers to everything. Uh, you've probably noticed from this podcast already. I don't generally give easy binary answers. Um, <laughs> so, and but that's what's kind of wanted um, on many media platforms at the moment, and particularly in punditry. So, um, I'm kind of a bit of an outlier because I, I, that's not what I do. I've not got great interest in it. I don't find it particularly interesting. Um, but that's where a lot of it's gone. I've always just went by a kind of a couple of ideas that I've had. One of them is, I'm going to try and tell you something that you might not know. Not that you don't know, because that's arrogant, that you might not know. Because I'm always wanting to learn. 
And I think there's a lot of intelligent football fans out there who are really quite intrigued to learn and they want to know something that from the inside, they don't want somebody going, oh, sack the manager, you know, and oh, it hit the crossbar. Yes, we can see that. <laughs> That's fine. We know that happened. And, and I, I, it's just not, I'm not saying it's bad. Um, it's just not. So I can't, I don't really watch that many pundits. Um, I'll probably fast forward through that sort of stuff because um, I, I won't have a great interest in it. I, I'm not saying it's bad. It's just some people have an interest in some things and some have another. So in many ways, I've done it for quite a long time now, 20 odd years. Um, I, if it finished tomorrow morning, I wouldn't be surprised because, you know, that style is maybe not as wanted. It certainly isn't wanted in TV um, anymore. Um unless you are much younger and of course I'm getting older now so you know they always want a younger face so and I'm probably rubbish as well <laughs> well no Pat Pat how dare you have a nuanced opinion about complicated things yeah but, but that's the whole idea they, they don't want it um they, they, everything has to be tight everything has to be sound right um and I work for quite a lot of people that have to make that happen as well um and, and that's and it's partially because you know there are time limitations but it's also because of the quick expectancy expectancy of the social media so i, I find that a wee bit tiresome but you know that, that i may be an age thing yeah and i i i'm intrigued by some of the stuff that i watch i'm never annoyed about it i'm never angry um i never feel uh, oh i wish i was doing that show i never feel any of that sort of stuff um i just get a chance now and again to work in various things and I did something I like doing new things you've probably noticed um and I did a new thing yesterday um which I'm so happy about and it's I've got a show a podcast that I'm on every week on the BBC World Service called the BBC World Football Podcast and I'm on it every week and I've been doing it for about uh, four months now anyway they've asked me to uh, present and it's not something I've done a great deal of before and I presented my first one yesterday um, and I'll, I'll do a few, you know, I don't know how many I'll do, but uh, I'll probably go back to just being a, a guest again. But it was brilliant fun and I absolutely loved doing that show. Um, so anybody out there, just have a wee listen into the BBC World Service podcast um, and uh, you can get it in the BBC Sounds. Hey, I'm well trained already here. Um, and it's, it's actually a good show. Um, we talked about New Zealand football and also what happened in New Zealand with the multiple shooting over there. Um, a couple of footballers were killed in that. In fact, three football footballers were killed in that. Talking to somebody who knew them. Um, ben was talking to a great friend of mine, uh, who some of your listeners will know well, Heather O'Reilly. Heather's, yep. on, yeah, Heather's on every week with me. Um, so it's a great show and it's a great bunch of people to do it with. And uh, so I, it's on World Service. And that's probably much better suited to the style of the things I do. Well, Pat, we have greatly appreciated getting a chance to listen to you know anecdotes about your playing career, the assessment on the club, the youth talent, your recommendations for Joy Division albums, and everything in between <laughs> has been exceptional. And we. Uh, we'll get you out on there, Bat, but thank you so much for making the time to come on the podcast with us. It's been an absolute pleasure, and good luck with the editing. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, the the one member of our crew, Brandon, who wasn't here today, it owns that responsibility. So this is a note to you, Brandon. Enjoy. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Brandon. <laughs> but uh, as it always goes, uh, thank you, everyone, to listening. And until next time, friends, keep the blue flag flying high. <laughs>